All right. Welcome, folks. This is our first episode of a new podcast, Larger, Freer, More Loving. And ultimately, with this podcast, our goal is to aid ourselves and y'all in a journey towards living a larger, freer, and more loving life by critically engaging the popular culture that we live in, particularly with a focus on justice, care, the arts, and the community. But understanding what we're doing here requires understanding what we're talking about with this larger, freer, more loving phrase here. Uh, so Dwight, you wanna let them know what's up there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know how many people have read James Baldwin's uh, The Fire Next Time, um, but in that text, he tells us, um, he's actually referring, referring to the church in the text. Um, and he's saying if the church has any validity, any truth at all, it is to make us larger, freer, and more loving. Um, and so what we, what we want to do with this podcast is also hold ourselves to that same standard. Um, we want to live a life that um, allows people to extend themselves um, beyond their own communities, but also allows themselves to be free in that extension too. Um, so we have this larger and this freeness within that extension, but also finding a way to know that in that you're always living in relationship as an individual in relationship to the community. Yeah. And so then you have to find a way to um, also be loving, not only to yourself, but also to the community. Um, and so when we're talking about larger, freer, and more loving, it's really about focusing um, on extending yourself, um, but also allowing yourself to be free even in that extension um, and finding a way to love yourself and the community, which to be serious, if you're doing it right, loving yourself is loving the community, right? Loving yourself is loving the community. Um, and I'm super excited to be here. Um, and I'm excited to be doing this with Matt. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I really couldn't ask for a better partner in this, really couldn't. Um, no, um, thanks, man. And I mean, so, so we've been talking about doing this for a while, um, and we planned on actually starting a little bit later, um, but given our goals here, right, given that we're trying to make ourselves larger, freer, more loving, we're trying to aid others being larger, freer, more loving, and seeing the connection between those things and the connection to those in the community, right now seemed as important of a time as ever for us to be starting this. Like, if we're trying to say something about connections between the individual and the community, especially with respect to justice and culture, with what's going on in relation to the political action that's grown up around the cold-blooded murder of George Floyd in the middle of the streets of Minneapolis, like, if we didn't have something to say right now, there's no point in this podcast, right? Not at all. Not at all. So, so yeah, so we wanted we wanted to uh, launch a little bit early because of that. Um, so that's that's the context we're coming to you from. Uh, but we should tell you a little bit about ourselves. Uh, Dwight, you want to kick us off there? So um, I'm Dwight Lewis. I often go by Dwight Kenneth Lewis Jr. Um, it's really uh, an ode to my father. My dad passed away when I was going into uh, high school, um, and he is Dwight, Dwight Kenneth Lewis Sr. Um, and so I uh, go by my full name oftentimes um, just to ground myself in where I've came from and also to shout out to him every time I do 
um, just the little things I do, not important, important, whatever it is. Uh, I want to always be reminded um, of the love that he gave and also um, the attention that he gave um, in relationship to allowing me to get where I'm at today. Um, I am a assistant professor at the uh, University of Central Florida, um, but right now I'm, I'm actually doing a Mellon postdoc at uh, Penn State um, in State College, Pennsylvania. Um, I work on a lot of different things. I focus on the early modern time period. Um, I focus on the historical ontology of race. Um, I also really um, am working towards now um, public philosophy, which is um, engaged with things that are going on right now today in our culture um, and trying to find ways to have um, intellectually stimulating conversations about these things. Um, really to push ourselves um, to, of course, uh, live larger, freer, more loving. <laughs> um, uh, just to be truthful, that is what it is, uh, 100%. Um, and like I said before, I'm excited to have Matt here. Um, and also, Matt, if you could tell us a little, about your, a little bit about yourself. yourself. Uh, yeah, thanks, Dwight. Uh, so um, I'm Matt Levine. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, that you talked about your name there a little bit, because um, uh, my name should actually not be pronounced Matt Levine. My name should be pronounced Matt Levine. Uh, but uh, my older brother decided that Levine was a cooler sounding way to say our last name. <laughs> uh, and my, so I, I am a hun I'm like the world's biggest mama's boy. I absolutely positively love my mom more than anything else in the world didn't have the greatest relationship in the world with my dad. Uh, so my brother Dave, who's 10 years older than me, uh, largely helped raise me with my mom. So, so he liked to say Levine, so I've become Levine. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. Right? That is awesome. I didn't even know that. Yeah, right? Not, not many people no. know that, actually. No. So yeah, that, that's a funny little story to include. That is cool. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, what, what background I'm bringing to this, uh, so, so I am a philosopher by training, um, you know, so I look at philosophy as uh, the rigorous and systematic investigation to those questions that people across disciplines and walks of life normally take for granted. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, if you can't tell, I've said that once or twice in my life. <laughs> uh, but I mean, basically for me, that was something that I really wanted to get into because Prejudices, biases, assumptions, these are things we take for granted, and these are things that are fucking up the world maybe faster than anything else is. Uh, mm -hmm. So I've always seen thought, thinking, education, academia as really, really engaged with the real world, at least it ought to be really engaged with the real world. Um, so, so focusing on philosophy for me um, was, was the way to do that. Um, since I've actually gotten into academia, turns uh, out philosophers got some issues on this front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell uh, us about that. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, but I mean, uh, uh, philosophers have historically done more to perpetuate problematic biases, prejudices, and assumptions much more than they have ever done critically engaging those things and trying to change those things. So even though I'm a philosopher by training, uh, 
you won't necessarily see me considering myself a philosopher. You won't find me in lots of uh, philosophical circles. Because um, again, what I'm, what I'm primarily interested in is justice. How, how can we live in a more just world? What can I do to uh, help us get to a more just world? Uh, and that's honestly, that's my approach to what I'm listening to. That's my approach to what I'm reading. Uh, that's my approach to what I'm wearing. I got my The War on Drugs is bullshit shirt on right now. <laughs> that's just, uh, so yeah, so that's, that's why uh, uh, meeting you uh, three years ago and becoming friends with you has become uh, just one of the coolest things about the last few years. Because uh, you're Same here. an awesome Same person to work with on that stuff. Same here. Same here. Same here. Right. So that's us. Uh, and we're coming together uh, to do a podcast here, um, Larger, Freer, More Loving. And today, um, we wanted to, again, talk a little bit about um, what's going on around us right now, and in particular, what can we do about that? Um, and we wanted to talk a little bit about what everybody can do, but did want to especially focus on um, what, what white folks can do right now to become uh, my favorite term uh, for, for good white folks, race traders. Uh, white folks need to become race traders. Uh, and, and the reason we wanted to focus on that question is, um, you know, this is our responsibility. We fucked shit up. We stole all the power. We need to do something about that. We need to tear that shit down. Um, but also, uh, people of color have shown their resilience. People of color have been fighting this system for many, many hundreds of years now. You can find every type of resistance. You can find every type of resilience in black communities and in indigenous communities and in people of color communities generally. Um, it's the white folks that uh, they got to start, got to start holding our own here, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, this was, this was uh, what we wanted to focus on here. Um, and in particular, we wanted to talk about um, how, how white folks can become committed white allies, yeah. right? Because it's, it's sort of, it's the topic of the moment right now to uh, be thinking about and talking about protests around police brutality, to show up at protests about police brutality. Most. Right. <laughs> but I mean, folks have been seeing that for a long time. White folks have been willing to show up virtue signal for a day and then forget about it when they go home after they've posted everything on their social media saying, aren't I just the most amazing uh, white person in the world? Uh, you know, I took a couple hours out of my day to, uh, to, to, to show up. Um, so, so, warrior. right, right, right. And I mean, that's just, you know, you've been going to protests a lot recently, and that's not the experience you have walking away from protests, right? Yeah, not always, not always. Right. Definitely not. Um, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate the protest and I'm glad to see people there and I'm glad to see people committed to doing that. Um, but as we talked about, 
you know, the commitment um, and being a true ally doesn't just take place at a revival, right? Um, the a revival means absolutely nothing unless you go home um, and somehow you've caught the spirit while at that revival and you can't help, right? That spirit is beating in your chest and you can't help but spread the gospel. Um, and that's something uh, that I think is uh, foundational yeah, to when we start talking about these committed allies um, and the things that they could or should be doing um, is uh, not just showing up for a protest, but what are the things outside of that protest that you can be really doing um, to, 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 um, to have that gospel bleeding out every day. Right. Um, and I think you talked about this before, not in this podcast, but before we got on here, um, you talked about how there's a million different lists of what, um, you know, allies can do. Um, what, and what we really wanted to do here is just focus on three major areas, right, that you could really focus in on. Instead of having this list of eight things or 10 things or 12 things, you can go back to this as something that you can remember and you can then focus on and really try um, to attempt uh, to ally yourself in relationship to these three things. And the things that we um, talked about were particularly um, democracy, um, education, and community. Mm -hmm. um, these three things are really the catalysts um, and the foundation to um, not being a lukewarm liberal, right? Um, these are the things that are the catalyst to actually pushing us um, and pushing not only America, right? Um, as we see these protests are happening all over the, all over the globe. Um, so also pushing the globe um, to think about um, being committed allies, right? Um, right. Again, white, white supremacists have been trying to push their ideology around the world for a long, long time, right? Um, Even though we've got 400 plus years of uh, anti-black racism in the United States, 500 plus years of anti-indigenous colonial uh, racism in the United States, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> that... <laughs> That white supremacy is uh, unfortunately not unique to the United States, right? Nope, nope. it's a monster. It's a monster. Um, so the three things that we're going to focus on are democracy, um, education, and community. And Matt's going to lead us off. First, he, uh, he has a, a bent towards uh, democracy, of course. Um, and so uh, he, like I, I also do, um, but I think that Matt has a, an eye towards injustice in relationship to democracy also because he has an eye um, that I don't have, which is a white eye. Um, and I think he comes to this from a different perspective that allows us um, to, not, uh, to not have the preconceived notions of my blackness um, in relationship to possibly being anti-American um, when I say something about America uh, is questionable. Um, and so here, um, uh, Matt is going to uh, kind of open us up um, and talk about uh, democracy. Yeah, right. So, so for starters, um, one of the things I think that's really important about promoting democracy and moving oneself in a more democratic direction um, is recognizing that um, promoting democracy and promoting the United States government are not the same thing and in fact oftentimes are in direct conflict with one another one hundred so i mean democracy is governance leadership by the people 
at no point in the history of the United States have we had leadership governance by the people. Right? <laughs> and I mean, for starters, just in terms of uh, the very way in which we set up the system, uh, we're a representative democracy. Right. So in a representative democracy, you know, you you delegate authorities to uh, represented uh, uh, elected representatives to represent the leadership, the governance by the people. Right. So so the very idea that a representative democracy is a democracy in the first place is entirely dependent on the idea that the elected representatives are a representative sample of the people. the people. And at no point in the United States has that ever been the case. At no point, yeah. not even close. And by design, right? Even, even right now, when we have the most diverse Congress that we have ever had in the United States, this is still a Congress that is roughly 80% uh, uh, men, roughly 90% plus uh, uh, white folks, and uh, a similar percentage of uh, Christians. But that is not the people, right? No, not at all, not at all. Right, not that does not even come close to representing the people. So for starters, even this idea of representative democracy doesn't work out in our particular case because we do not have elected representatives that are representative that are a representative sample of the body that they're supposed to be uh, governing for. And that's just in the design of the system there are issues. When we actually look at the way it's been implemented, the idea that the United that promoting the United States government is promoting democracy really becomes a sham. Uh, but that'll come out when we talk about history. Uh, when we're talking about education. Uh, so, so I wanted to, that, that's what I wanted to say there, kicking us off about democracy. Um, recognizing that democracy is extremely important and we should promote it, but promoting democracy often means actually criticizing the United States government. So I, will, I have a question for you now. Um, and it, um, I, 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 so, if you um, if you if you had been in um, conversations that me and Matt had had before, you would know that I like asking particular questions that uh, um, um, white people might have asked to me in the past. Yeah. Uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, uh, my question for you right now is: um, So can someone that's um, that's white represent? Um, someone that is black in a way that actually um is like ties close to who they are um and um what do you think being able to do that actually takes right yeah right so, um so can they do it and then what does it actually take to be able to do that yeah so um for starters, I think the answer is uh, yes, they can. And I will, I will focus very, very clearly on they, they can. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have any of them? Nah, <laughs> right? Um, but I mean, so, so I do think it is possible for a white person to represent the interests of a black person, an indigenous person, an Asian person, et cetera. Um, I just think that everything about our society is set up in such a way that 
that's almost assuredly not going to be able to happen. It's not, it, it's not rewarding enough uh, mm-hmm. to want to do it. Right. Um, right. So then, and even if you wanted to do it, you're probably not going to be able to make it through the systems in America to actually get to a position where you get to be able to do yeah, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, I, I hate to bring up uh, someone like Bernie Sanders, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> someone like Bernie Sanders has been stopped at, uh, at, many, uh, at many points of his, uh, of his movement up, quote unquote, upwards. Um, right. Um, and a lot of ways have been backhanded. A lot of ways have been the DNC. Um, um, and he is someone that I think, um, a lot of at least poor, um, folk in America would be like, you know, he's got our, he's like, he might be one of them. There's parts of what he's doing. That's very in line with what we need. Not with like, it's not even that they're even voting that way. Right. It's not even that the poor people are even voting for Bernie. It's just like that's very in line with what we need. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So like the second question, what does it um what did someone like Bernie have to do to be able to be what he is? Right. Um what what did like what is it that allows someone that is um not a part of a community? to be able to actually, uh, yeah, speak up for a particular community. Um, right, so I mean, I think, I think part of that is, part of that starts with recognizing why, why it would be the case that um, most people of a particular identity group choose, choose your particular, uh, your favorite identity here, are often going to want somebody from their particular uh, identity group to represent them, right? And and so so in a certain sense, we can see that as why is there a connection between procedural justice and distributive justice, right? So so oftentimes when people are talking about justice, they're just talking about the distribution of burdens and benefits in society. Do we have a fair distribution of burdens and benefits? But, but lots of folks for a while now have been trying to say, like, this is, this is an inadequate way to, to have the entire conversation about justice. We don't just need to talk about that distribution. We need to talk about the decision-making processes and procedures that lead to that distribution in the first place. Yeah, right? yeah. One of the things you find people talking about so often on this front is uh, the importance of participation of people from different identity groups as a really important element of procedural justice. And it seems there that part of the reason people see this connection, and I think there is a really, really strong connection between them, is that, you know, people who are experiencing a particularly unfair distribution are going to be in a much better epistemic position to be able to understand the nuances of that unfair distribution, the problems with that unfair distribution, what could be done because they've lived it and experienced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they right. felt it. They've actually right. felt it. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I hear that. I hear that. Um, right. so, so once people start to see that, that experience with a problem is going to help you understand a problem much better, and this is why people often want to have a particular uh, uh, representative of that identity group representing the identity group 
again, is because of that particular standpoint, because of that experience, um, you can start to you can start to then see, I think, part of what it would take for, say, a white person to be able to speak for, uh, to be able to represent the interests of people of color, right? So they they need to have intimate connection with those communities, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. Boots right. on the boots on the ground. What I don't want to say, boots on the ground. Um, now I do want to say this, uh, 100%. I agree with everything you're saying, and I, and they do need to have boots on the ground, and they need to be involved. Um, in the same way, um, I will say this. Um, I think I can move, um, and I could almost predict um, uh, um, how. Uh, how uh, particular white people are going to vote and if I could um, um, represent them based on the fact that I've just spent the last like 10 years of my life um, completely like surrounded about, around like white, very educated people. Right. Um, and so um, I've been to their houses, I've been to their lake houses, I've done this, I've, I've traveled with them. Um, and I can't look at one of my colleagues um that talks about justice um that has done the same thing you know uh in relationship to uh being around black people like that right. or immigrants like this or even um or even trans folk right um it's like and again also disabled folk i can't i can't there's not many of my colleagues that are like actually not that thing and that are living in that space um and i'm not saying that then precludes you from being able to do a thing um, I just think it makes it very difficult. Um, so, and then secondly, you know, um, uh, I also want to say that Black is diverse, right? Uh, and so there's a lot of different perspectives um, and uh, people are agreeing with things on all different fronts. Um, and I think we for, there's something that not only we forget about in America, um, but we also forget uh, amongst even Black people. Um, and I say this also, and we talked about this earlier, but I say this also, even in relationship to how people are protesting, right? Um, people are getting um, mad at the way that black people are mourning, um, mourning the last 400 years of, um, yeah, of like being not just um, systematically taken advantage of. Um, and I don't wanna use the term that I would use right here, and it starts with an R. Um, but also physically letting that happen too, not letting it, it being taken from you, um, right? And this has happened, um, things like this, um, and the way that the system is set up has been going on for a long time. Um, and so um, Black people are mourning um, with those last 400 years in very diverse ways. Some people are, you know, quote unquote, looting, some people are burning things, some people are quote unquote, whatever peacefully protesting is. Um, uh, but I actually want to affirm all those. Uh, um, I want to affirm all the ways that black people are, are, um, are mourning uh, with the last 400 years. Now, I may not be looting. Um, I may not be burning stuff. Uh, but who knows if I'll be the same person in 20 years and not looting and burning stuff. Um, because that is what needs to happen for us to move forward. Right. Um, and oftentimes, uh, this is where people look at us, um, Black people, 
right? Um, and they try to say that uh, America is taking some higher ground, right? We were talking about this earlier. Uh, and it's mind blowing to me. Uh, it's mind blowing to me um, that you talk about America taking, being on a higher moral ground because of looting and burning. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about this maybe later, but when we want to talk about the history of America, um, you want to talk about looting and burning. Um, let's not forget America was started because sons and daughters got mad at their mommies and daddies because they were being taxed too much. Right. Um, and white and like, and, and black people today are literally just attempting to have, um, the same, uh, the same ability to live the American dream that all Americans have, right? Um, that's it, that's it. Um, and I'm sorry, like uh, complaining about your mom and dad taking more of your, um, your uh, allowance uh, is, is, is mind blowing. Um, being treated as a full human um, in your country is uh, I think uh, a much higher, <laughs> There's much more risk involved. Um, um, and um, Black people have been very patient for the last 400 years. Uh, I don't think that's, that's everything, everything about the last 400 years has been a moral high ground. Um, and so you're going to take, you know, uh, burning of less than 50 buildings, looting of less than 200 uh, companies, businesses, as oh now we're on the moral high ground it's like man let's talk about the ways that you looted and burned you know africans for a long time yeah Yeah. let's talk about that um so for me it's like when it comes down to it they talk about this moral high ground of america and really i mean if americans were more like black people over the last 400 years i think they could claim the moral high ground and I mean, what's so interesting about that too is, so, so one of the things that seems to me, one of, uh, uh, one of the reasons that people are, are looting and burning has to do with the fact that this is how you get white Americans to care about shit. Mm. Mm. That's what they care about. They care, yeah. about, they care about their target on the corner, right? Yeah, yeah, still, they, yeah I agree. And I agree. for 400 years, They've cared more about that shit than the yeah. well-being, the emotions, yeah. the humanity of black folks. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so don't give me any fucking bullshit about white Americans have any moral high ground. Yeah, yeah, non-existent. Yeah. Non-existent. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. All right, so we have talked quite a bit about democracy and a lot of stuff yeah. that didn't have to do with democracy. Uh, so let's move on um, and talk a little bit about this education um, and history. Um, yeah. I, um, yeah, I'll let you start for us. Yeah, so honestly, for me, if, <laughs> if you're a white person who's trying to become a committed white ally and trying to be somebody who's recognizing that, if, if I'm going to be an anti-racist, that's something I'm committing to for the rest of my life, right? 400 plus years to build anti-blackness in the United States, 500 plus years to build colonial anti-indigeneity in the United States, that's gonna take some time to, 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 to tear down. And I think a big part of that project for me is uh, learning our own history. 
Um, I used to absolutely positively hate history until I started learning that every bit of history I'd been taught was a lie, right? So, so if you're trying to understand what's going on right now, you need to understand something about the history of the police. You wanna understand why there are so many people calling for either the abolition of police or the defunding of police right now. You need to understand the history of police in the United States. And that's because these suggestions are gonna sound really odd to those who think of the police as those who protect and serve, right? But it's super important to note that the historical record on this shows that this is as empty of rhetoric as there could possibly be unless it just is short for protect and serve white folks. And I mean, unfortunately, there's a history that tells us that um, that, that, that is what it's short for. And, and one, of the, one of the best uh, uh, ways of capturing this that I've ever come across, uh, uh, Charles Mills introduced me to this Black American folk aphorism that when white folks say justice, they mean just us, right? <laughs> and you can see that through the history of policing in the United States. So if you wanna understand the history of the police in the United States in a couple steps, started out as slave patrols, then they became the folks who enforced the black codes after the Civil War was over, then they became the people who enforced Jim Crow laws, and now these days, they're the people who perpetrate the racist war on drugs. So if you're trying to understand what's going on right now, and you're not seeing it in relation to that history of policing, you're just going to miss things entirely. Right? But the police are not the only problem here right now. Right? So yes, ignorance about things like the history of policing that I just mentioned keeps action to dismantle these problems from taking hold. Um, but I mean, this is a problem with ignorance of the history of the Americas and the United States generally, right? So uh, indigenous folks uh, often like to refer to uh, what we call the Americas today, Turtle Island, right? So ignorance of the fact that Turtle Island has been home to some of the most rich and sophisticated societies that the world has ever known for at least 5,000 years now, this is going to lead to ignorant claims like Europeans discovered the Americas. And then if we're ignorant of the fact that these Western discoverers and explorers were actually colonizers, perpetuators of genocide, and expropriators of bodies and land, then this is going to give us a really problematic frame for looking at the history of the Americas. And then if we don't connect this, and the fact that, say, the Declaration of Independence referred to indigenous people of the Americas as, quote, merciless Indian savages. Mm -hmm. And the US Constitution defines slaves of African descent as three-fifths of free persons, then you're going to look at the United States very differently. Yeah. And in particular, you're going to look at things like George Floyd being murdered in cold blood in the streets of Minneapolis or Amy Cooper calling on her whiteness and our society's anti-blackness to threaten the life of Christian Cooper, you're gonna see those as broken bad apples straying from a well-designed system. But unfortunately, as again, I'll refer to Charles Mills again, his wonderful work has been showing for three decades now. Unfortunately, these things are outputs of the system precisely as they were designed.
So if we don't start recognizing these things, then there's no chance that we'll be able to have the sustained, committed movement that's needed to undo that 400, 500 years of, of really, really problematic history. If we don't know where we're coming from, there's no chance we're gonna get to a good place going forward. Yeah, 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 100%. I am gonna, I, um, I am gonna talk on two things that you brought up. Yeah, what you got? Uh, I, uh, you brought up the wrong drugs, and I really want to just sit for that on a, for a second. Um, we talk about, so I, like I said, I really am focused. Um, I do work historically, but I'm really focused on these current events. Um, so when we talk about the war on drugs, um, I'm, and I'm going to be a little like cavalier here, a little open. Um, we oftentimes see this as legit, as legitimate um, because black people are doing so many drugs. Um, and um, as someone, like I said, that's been the last, you know, um, 10 years in, a, in very white spaces. Um, and I'm just going to be real with you. Um, I'm sorry. I didn't know how many white people did drugs until I went to grad school. Like, I didn't know that professors, I didn't know that lawyers, I didn't know that doctors, I didn't know. And we're not just talking about smoking weed, right? We're talking about hard drugs. And as you know, in the black community, um, of course, a lot of people may smoke weed. Um, but when it comes down to it, uh, we have terms for people that do hard drugs negative terms. It's actually shamed in the community to do hard drugs, right? Um, you're a crackhead, you're a this, you're a that. Um, and this is something that to some extent, a lot of blacks in America, and, I, and here I am generalizing a little bit, but a lot of blacks in America, in America are actually not doing, not doing that many, like doing drugs beyond smoking weed. Um, but from my experience in, um, in a particular um, white sphere, um, People are doing, if they're smoking weed, they're doing a lot of other drugs. Uh, not when they're, maybe not when they're younger, but once they get older, they are doing acid, molly, shrooms, uh, coke, all of these drugs. Um, and they're doing it freely. Right. And they're doing it completely free, completely free because black people are the ones that do all these drugs. And preemptive policing focuses on black people and walks around in black neighborhoods with dogs um, and it's like mind blowing to me that I've been in these in like really white spaces um, of people doing a lot of drugs and I've yet to see anyone ever get arrested. Right. I've yet to see anyone even like none of my friends has even ever been like almost charged. I have plenty of friends that have been pulled over by the cops with the stuff um, prior to um, the ticket giving um, um, laws that have passed right. um, with bonds, with this, with that. I um, mean, the cops just let them go. Um, I haven't heard a story like that from one of my black friends. No. You know? um, and so when we talk about this war on drugs, I think it's important to see um, that this is a war on drugs that is focused on black people. Like this policing is like focused on black people. Um, and, and that's why it seems like black people are doing this particular thing. Um, and then it's easy to, to then legitimize the statistics um, based on the fact that you're like, oh, those people just aren't doing this stuff. Um, but I just know for a fact I've been there. I've been in your houses. Right. I've hung out with your kids. I've hung out with you. Right. Um, and it's like, you know, when it's, it's actually like I was literally mind blown 
when I started working on my PhD, mind blown. I was like, whoa, whoa. Is this, this can't be real life. Right. Like I was always told that this is not what white people do. Right. I was like, man, society has just really lied to me a lot. Right. Oh yeah. No, and I mean, this, this fits entirely with my experience too, Dwight. I mean, I can absolutely positively say a higher percentage of the white people I know do drugs than the percentage of black folks I know doing drugs. Like, I mean, it's because it, it's not even close, actually, in my life. My and life. I mean, so, and, and I mean, this is this is not this is not an anomaly uh, uh, for 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 you, your experience and my experience. This is this is what all of all of the best social science is telling us that that it is absolutely not the case that black people in the U.S. use drugs more than white folks. What it is, is there, uh, and as you, as you go up in each one of these things, there's an even greater disparity, right? So, so you start at no disparity in terms of uh, drug use, and then you have a significant disparity with respect to uh, drug arrests. Then you have an even greater disparity with respect to drug convictions. And then you have an even greater disparity with respect to drug sentencing, right? So, and, and I mean, so, so this, and I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by this. We have the tapes. Nixon, Nixon says explicitly that this is what he was trying to do with the war on drugs. Like this is, this is not, yeah, I mean, this is, this is not a conspiracy theory on our part. Like this is just, this is straight up the facts. The war on drugs is an attempt to commit violence against black people in black communities to uh, break up black communities and to disenfranchise black communities. Right? So, I mean, you know, one of the things that, that uh, you know, uh, uh, is it 13 or 13th? What's the, what's the name of the documentary there? 13th. 13th, right? So people should take a look at the documentary 13th, right? So, so one of, this is about the 13th uh, amendment to the US constitution which outlaws slavery except in those cases where people are imprisoned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is an attempt to recreate slavery in the United States by putting people in prison, putting black people in prison. And the fact that these, uh, uh, the, we, we see the sentencing laws that also disenfranchise these people that have been put in prison for things that I have done many times in my life and never been in a bad situation for, this is leading to, you know, people's entire lives being defined by the fact that they smoked some fucking pot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pot. Pot. Right. Uh, it's like mind blowing to me. Right. I don't know if anyone, if, uh, like, if you've ever had a pothead father and a pothead drunk, I think, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's mind blowing to me that people, that in America we pick the drunk, the drunk dad. It's mind blowing to me. It's mind blowing. Um, it really is. Um, also, just for a second, I uh, want to bring up the defunding of the police. Um, when we talk about when, um, and I'm not speaking for Black Lives Matter here. Um, I am not uh, uh, affiliated with them. I'm not a, a, 
you know, part of their um, uh, platform. Um, but when we talk about defunding the police, I think oftentimes um, people want to think that we're talking about getting rid of police. Um, and I, for me anyways, I don't know about you, maybe you're on a different side, maybe you want to get rid of them, and that's fine also. Um, but for me, um, I really want to talk about, um, when we talk about defunding the police, we're not talking, at least for me, I'm not trying to talk about getting rid of the police. What I'm really trying to push towards is allowing police um, to be able to become specialized in what they actually do. Um, so instead of having to have, you know, um, every cop have a gun, um, there are certain cops that could show up to certain calls where they don't need a gun, right? Um, there are certain cops that could be um, uh, people that come in and do advocacy, um, do, do different things um, instead of like a, uh, a, uh, a cop that's directing traffic doesn't need a gun, um, point blank. Um, but there's just like uh, this idea that, well, if every cop doesn't have a gun, then we're not gonna have the time to get to where we need to get to, to then shoot people. It's like, well, maybe less people will get shot then. Right? No one ever asks the question of, oh, well, maybe like you will kill less people. Um, and oftentimes, the cops aren't showing up in time for things that are actually, people are actually getting shot at, right? right. Like let's talk about mass shootings. Also, and I'll bring up gang violence. You're not getting there in time for these. None of y'all are. Right. You're always late to that. Right, so I mean, under-policing and over-policing, right? These are both parts of this really, really messed up system right here, right now. Um, so sorry, yeah, continue. I'm just, uh, I agree. Uh, and so you're over-policing when it comes to the people that actually um, don't need you there with your guns. And then you're under-policing when people do need you there with the guns, right? And so you're in this space where you're actually not doing either one. Um, the preemptive policing isn't working in relationship to gangs. We already see that. It's not working in relationship to mass, uh, mass shootings. Like, not, not at all. But, you know, um, how, like, how is it um, that um, someone like Ahmad Aubrey, where hopefully, like, you guys are supposed to be policing then, right? right? That's where you're supposed to be over-policing. You're supposed to have guns. Everyone has a gun. You're good to go. Um, still gets killed. And you're still not there on time. Right. Right? And then when you are there on time, you're, you're kneeling on someone's back, suffocating them to death. And so I'm just like, how can we, um, to some extent, um, help to alleviate this problem? Um, and I'm 100% um, for uh, like anti-gun, uh, anti-gang violence. Like 100%. I'm like I'm not for uh, mass shootings, of course. <laughs> um, um, but how do we then stop those type of events? How do we then stop the mod? the Ahmad Aubrey events um, and also not allow the George Floyd events to happen, right? right? Um, and I think that's one way we do it is we have cops have guns that need guns, right? right? And the ones that don't then become uh, de-escalation police, advocacy police, people that can actually do particular things um, but that aren't um, toting this weapon. Um, and I have nothing wrong with, you know, keep a taser on them. Like, um, 
keep the, like, they can sell out the, you know, pepper spray, all that stuff. Um, but I think uh, some people are just not prepared um, for the amount of different calls that cops are getting, right? Cops are getting, what is it, 150 different, have 150 different um, codes, um, call codes um, for showing up to a, um, to any type of uh, event that's taking place. It's like, why can't we break that down into three different groups? That then these groups, you know, go to these particular calls. These groups go to these particular calls. These groups go to the, go to, go to these particular calls. Um, and that's the type of thing we're talking about with defunding the police. We're not talking about getting rid of the cops. I understand you're afraid. Some people have been afraid since they wake up afraid. But I mean, I'm, I'm in State College PA right now, and I don't know how many times I've been told by white people that this is a sundown town. Right? And so it's like, should I wake up afraid? Does racism not exist? Right? I'm confused. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's like, I got people literally being like, watch yourself. Right? Who's stopping those people? Right. But we're, but we're really going after drugs. Right. We're really trying to stop that gang violence, right? Right, and I mean, I think I th so. I, I think you're absolutely right about all of that. And 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 so so one of the things that's really really near and dear to me is um, talking about police in relation to mental health issues, right? So if you want to if you want to talk about the need to to specialize more and put funding into these different places, right? The people who deal with, um, you know, the people who deal with mass shootings should not be the people who are dealing with people with mental health issues. Yeah, right. right. And, and in my, you know, in my, so, so this is really near and dear to me because I have had serious mental health issues my entire life. Um, I'm severely obsessive compulsive and I deal with a lot of depression and anxiety as a result of that. Um, and in my experience, what that dealing with that is about is going to the counselor that is covered by the particular health insurance that I get with my job. In lots of black and brown communities around the United States, that's that. not available. Yeah, yeah, What's yeah. available to them is a police person who doesn't understand a thing about mental health issues, doesn't understand anything about dealing with people with mental health, and maybe even worse, has been trained as a soldier. This is one of the things that's really, really, really problematic about the United States. Uh, uh, and, and I mean, this is one of the ways in which policing in the United States, I think has actually gotten worse recently, uh, is, is the military training that has taken over police units, especially since uh, uh, September 11, 2001. Um, mm -hmm. and this is something that if you're interested in this, um, uh, Angela Davis put out a book a couple of years ago, um, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Um, uh, I think the subtitle is something like Ferguson, Palestine and the Creation of a Movement. So one of the things she's talking about here is uh, the connection between uh, issues that the Black Lives Matter movement is fighting against um, and issues facing um, Palestinians and other, other colonized peoples around the world. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things she talks about as, as understanding the connection here is that um, black people in the United States, Palestinians in uh, uh, occupied territory, are treated as enemy combatants by, by people who have been trained to look at their job in terms of being a soldier, in terms of being at war. Yep. If, if, you, if you put me around people with guns who were trained to treat me like an enemy combatant when I've been at some of my worst points with respect to my obsessive compulsive disorder, or the ways in which uh, uh, I act and react when I'm spiking particularly badly, those guys, they're gonna kill me. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. because I'm a white person in America, that's not the experience I have with mental health. That's the experience that unfortunately too many black and brown people in the United States have with mental health, is not a mental health counselor who wants to help them, but a person with a gun who's trained to treat them as an enemy combatant. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. Yeah. So if we want to defund the police, what we're talking about, again, is not getting rid of the police, but asking the police to deal with mass shootings and asking for a whole bunch of that money that gets set aside for the police to now be set aside for mental health counseling and infrastructure. Yeah, 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 uh, 100%. And for ways to rehabilitate people um, so they can be, um, and I don't even want to say successful citizens, but um, larger, freer, more loving. Larger, freer, more loving. <laughs> God, you're good at that, Dwight. <laughs> Um, so we've talked a little about democracy, we've talked about education, um, and now I'm going to start by talking a little bit about community, um, and then Matt chime in whenever, whenever, whenever. Um, one of the things I'm really pushing right now on, um, on my white friends, especially, especially if you want to be, um, one of these committed allies, is I'm trying to, um, get them all to put Black Lives Matters, um, signs on their house, in their windows. Um, and I'm doing this partly um, because I think that community can actually force change. I actually believe in the idea um, that a community can actually um, change even maybe before policy could change something, um, even before legality could actually change something. Um, I wanna say the community can do it um, uh, more effectively. Um, and by placing these signs in front of your house, on your, in your windows, um, what, you end up, what you are inevitably saying to your neighbors is if you do these type of things that are anti-Black or anti-larger, um, uh, freer, more loving, right, then I'm going to call you out about it, right? Um, and so what then we have is a deter away from doing particular things. And then when people show up to your house and they're like, oh, What do you guys, what do you guys, Black Lives Matter something? What's going on here? <laughs> What's going on? What's going on? <laughs> you, are, you then have to have done some type of education, right? You have to have done some type of education to then respond to those questions, right? Um, and then what you end up doing is in educating someone else that's a part of your community that may not be doing that to then move towards doing it. 
And then what, what ends up happening is then they put the sign up. And then they become educated. And then their neighbor comes over, right? And all of a sudden, the whole fucking what? I didn't mean to cuss. The whole white neighborhood um, has got Black, Life, Black Lives Matters all over, right? And now you've literally taken a community and forced it to care about a particular group of, of people, forced it to educate itself, forced it to police itself, right? You've moved way further along than po policy, right? Um, I, I, I want to say that policy works. I love policy. I think that it, I think it does work, um, but I think it's a trickle down effect. It takes time. Um, but grassroots is grassroots for a reason. It's beautiful. Um, that that stuff works bottom up. Democracy, democracy. Yeah, yeah. When we talk about democracy, it's exactly what it's doing. Yeah, one hundred percent. Um, and so for me, um, one of the things I think I even want to um, say about all, all of this um, is that if you are a committed ally in this, like in doing the communal thing, you will be doing the democratic thing. In doing the communal thing, you will be doing the educational thing, right? right? It's when you leave out community and you just have theory in your head, educational theory, and you just got theory about democracy, where you're missing out. It has to be. Um, so I, uh, I, you know, I'm a philosopher. Um, <laughs> and so it is what it is. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, moral theory that isn't applied um, is is um, is uh, devoid of any type of virtue. Right. And in fact, is is rather vicious. Yeah, 100%. Right? Like you've got, when you've got morality that you don't put into place, you're sort of diminishing the, the, the importance of morality in the first place, first right? Place. Yeah. And you teach people that thinking about morality is this big performance that you're just virtue signaling to people and like, nah. Thinking about morality should be something that keeps you up at night because you can't sleep until you've got that figured out because it's so essential to who you are in your life. Yeah, 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 100%. Yep, I think, yeah, yeah, you hit it on the, you hit it on the head, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you don't, if you don't, at least, I'm not saying that this is something that has to be pervasive in, in your life. Uh, for me, I want it to be though. Um, the question of justice is essential. Um, it's essential and it should be essential if we want to call ourselves quote unquote Americans, right? Um, we want to talk about that we are, you know, land of the free, home of the brave, we're, the, we're a just society with this. Um, and I don't think that it is a question that the majority of Americans are asking themselves. Right. Um, they're not, they're not inquiring into their just, into their justice. Right. Uh, and so, um, we bring up these three things, um, these uh, for someone to take this stance towards being a committed white ally, especially um, because we actually think um, that foundationally, um, when we want to talk about change, it's not, it's just not going, as we've seen over the last 400 years, um, black and brown people uh, can't, can't make it happen, right? Um, but we need the majority, we need the, the, uh, to be serious, the people that have power in the world to start changing their friends. Mm -hmm. um, and that comes by caring about others in the community and learning about democracy. 
learning about um, the ways that the history of America um, has placed Black people in a particular place, space in America and in the world. Um, and in that, once we grasp at those things, we can really move forward to educating our neighbors, right? Um, and educating our friends, educating when we go to dinner parties. Um, I'm not gonna lie, I went to a really, uh, 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 a very um, white undergrad called Wheaton College in Chicago. Um, I think I was one of less than 35 black dudes on campus. Um, and I met with my, uh, so I played football also, and I met with some of the guys from my, um, we had like a little reunion a year or two ago. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I'm beating them up about justice. Uh, we're over here arguing, going back and forth. Um, and one night we're like taking a cab back home uh, to where we're all staying at someone's, someone's house. Um, and I, um, and I'm in the back, the very back. Uh, and I just yelled through the, I just yelled through the van or wherever it was like an SUV. I don't know what it was. I yelled through there. I was like, just to let you know, it's like, I think I'm here just to remind you guys, right? It's like, you would never, you wouldn't have someone like me. You wouldn't be reminded of injustice towards particular peoples if I wasn't here. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is I'm doing this, but what could be happening is that people within the in white community could be doing exactly what I was doing there, mm -hmm. right? And pushing forward. Um, and I think that's, um, so we talk about peaceful protests. Um, I think that is actually a very peaceful protest, but also it's a very violent one too. Um, let's be real, you put that Black Lives Matter sign in front of your house, um, you don't know what violence is gonna come towards your house, right? But that's actually the type of peaceful protest that MLK was doing, right? <laughs> Black bodies on the ground so that then you can commit violence against me, mm. right? And hopefully it opens your eyes to the immorality of that violence, right? right? And so the question is, for me in this, is will you, you know, will you take up the mantle and actually decide um, to become this committed ally by focusing on the community and right. your community particularly? And being like I was in the back of that, uh, that SUV yelling, you know, I'm here, I'm here, I'm only here to make sure that you are questioning whether you're acting justly or not in the world, right? Right, and I mean, so, so I'm here really, I think this points out something important about the way, the way us white folks need to look at community if we are going to be those, those uh, committed anti-racist allies. It's not just looking at who is in your community and how you can improve that community, but it's also looking at who's not in your community. Right? Yeah, yeah. And this again brings us back to brings us back to history, right? So, so if you want to understand where people live in the United States today, you need to understand what happened between 1932 and 1968 with the Federal Housing Administration. Right? <laughs> So the Federal Housing Administration in 1932 starts backing uh, home mortgages uh, for individuals in the United States. Basically what allows for what we think of as the middle class today. But the Federal Housing Administration 
did everything in its possibility to only only back mortgages for white people living in white communities. So what the Federal Housing Administration did was made sure that the United States was as segregated and as segregated racially as possible. And that hasn't changed today, right? So, so the, the most standard metric that social psychologists use to measure segregation is called the dissimilarity index, right? So the dissimilarity index is a number between zero and 100 that whatever that number is, that tells you the percentage of that group of people that would need to move to no longer have a, a, a segregated community. So zero means you've got a perfectly integrated community. 100 means you've got as segregated of a community as you could possibly have. The United States today has an average black-white dissimilarity index of 70. That means if you're looking around the United States, 70% of the black people would need to move for there to no longer be rampantly segregated communities. Right? So. I don't know how we're supposed to have this, you know, this community, this perspective, this this integrated uh, uh, this integrated group of people that's needed to have a successful democracy until we start recognizing the effects of segregation on our communities and the way in which. Um, the United States government for a long, long time has been trying their damnedest to keep white folks and black folks apart from each other. And that's, I think, partly because um, scary things happen to the powers that be if white folks and black folks start working together. Agreed. Agreed. So, so again, if you're looking, if you're looking at your community as a white person and thinking about what it is you can do to make you and your community more connected, um, uh, uh, more larger, freer, more loving, not just looking at who's there, but who isn't there, and what you can do about bringing new voices in is really, really important here. And I want to make it clear, too, so you know, I've been talking about you white folks way too much. I'm a white person. I'm as much of the pro- a part of the problem as 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 any of us. And I mean, I think that's maybe that's maybe the last particular piece of advice um, I would have for white folks here is just get over the fact right now that there's a possibility that you aren't part of the problem. Like <laughs> that that's just that's going to be a waste of your time. Like I am a scholar of race. I think about race literally from the time I wake up in the morning to the time I go to bed. And I'm part of the problem. Like I've, I've won awards, I've literally won awards for my anti-racist work and I am clearly part of the problem. I, had, I, I put out a letter, I put out a letter to my colleagues today apologizing for some problematic shit that I'd done very, very recently. So I mean, if so, so just just skip the whole. Just skip the whole. Am I racist? Am I part of the problem? The answer is yes. You are. <laughs> the only hope we've got here is to add anti-racism on top of that to start breaking down the effects of the racism. Yeah, 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 yeah. For you men out there, it's the same way in relationship to uh, sexism. 
Like, like you come on now. Come on now. You gonna tell me you ain't sexist. Like, yeah, yeah. Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to yourself. Um, but I do think we enjoyed that. We enjoy lying to ourselves. Um, it yeah, feels right. it's feel good. Uh, and I think it's intuitively um, a human thing to legitimize ourselves um, in whatever position we hold. Um, uh, and I will say this, that the thing about both me and Matt's position is it's actually, uh, to some extent, we've had to make this these positions work um, in white spaces, right? Um, and white spaces where we didn't have, we still don't have um, a lot of power. Right. Um, we're not coming to you attempting to uh, give you some like crazy plan that like is way far out there. We're trying to give you something that's doable. Right. Something that is completely and utterly doable. Something that, you know, like we said, focuses on the community. And by focusing on your community, you're able to then, you're not just able, you're forced to then question democracy in relationship to America and also forced to question um, to question the type of education and relationship to um, race, gender, sexuality, um, all of the protected classes, right? Um, forced then um, to re-engage with that history, right? Um, and so when we, like, I understand that here we focus on Black Lives Matter, um, but the Black Lives Matter doesn't move forward um, unless we care about um, all of the protected classes. Um, because all the protected classes are actually a part of Black Lives Matter. Um, and me, um, right now, I actually need to uh, apologize for um, the ways that a lot of Black men are um, treating um, trans Black women. Um, it is something that is um, deplorable. Um, we do not condone it. Um, we're anti it. Um, here on this podcast, um, and we don't see that as larger, freer, and more loving. Um, the only way that we can love our brothers and our sisters and our people that are different from us is accepting those differences, especially if those differences are not hurting us. Um, it's not hurting themselves within reason. Um, I, I have no, I, I see no reason why then um, someone cannot be different. Um, and if you do see a problem with that, um, uh, call me up and we can have a conversation. Email me and we can have a conversation. Um, I'm not, uh, this is a stance that I'm not going to change, but I'd love to help you change yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, so thank you for bringing all that up. And it made me remember, um, uh, you know, with all this discussion of justice for George Floyd, um, which is an unbelievably important discussion. Unfortunately, I haven't heard the same discussion of justice for Tony McDade. So Tony McDade was, was murdered by the police two weeks ago, but uh, black trans man. And yep. that just doesn't register to us in the same way, unfortunately. Um, so I just wanna say, Justice for George Floyd and justice for Tony McDade. Yeah, 100%. Um, until we get better um, in that respect too, it's gonna be hard to move forward. Um, and that's also the same thing that we're saying 
we're like we're telling ourselves the same thing that we're saying to to, to white America too, um, and to the white globe, um, is that we also need you to move forward. Like we need you to care about us so that we all can move forward in the same way that I would say um, to. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard for me because I see, I, I keep seeing it on the web. Um, black, I'm about to scroll it out, black men um, being anti-queer, anti-trans, anti-this. Um, and it's, it's been beating me up. And we have, that's something that we have to work on also to move forward. Um, in the same way where America has to move forward in um, this race problem, right? If any of America is going to move forward, because you have the power, right? Um, uh, and so you have to do, the, you've got to decide what you're going to do with it. Um, and the thing is um, that I'll, I, this is one of the last things I'll say is I was saying earlier that um, I'm protesting peacefully right now. Um, but if that power continues to not be loosened, um, I can't promise you that in 20 years I will not be. Um, also uh burning and looting too like and i'm not even looting for the fact of like getting anything out of it like i gotta take that stuff and go right to a homeless shelter right it's not about that for me it's about what that statement means right because that's how uh i guess pissed off i am about where america is and where i think we need to move beyond um and I want, I do, I do, I, uh, uh, I guess another thing. <laughs> so I keep saying this. Uh, we're also not anti-cop, right? At least I'm not anti-cop. Um, I'm not saying that I'm pro-cop, but I'm not anti-cop. Um, I think there's reform that needs to happen. Um, and so I want you, the people that do watch this and want to say that someone is anti-cop, um, my brother's a cop. Um, and I am to be anti anti cop would actually be to be anti him, um, and I can't be anti my brother. My brother has um, my nieces and nephews, right? Um, I want him to come home safe. Um, and I think that um, people get lost in this um, tension between um, uh, uh, of like being anti black death and like being anti the cops. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you have to be on either side of those, on either side of those, of those tables. Um, I think you can be anti-black death and still be like, I appreciate the role that a cop could fill. Um, right. Um, I just want to help them fill that role. Um, and not a role that is then, um, causing black death. Um, I want a, a movement towards a cop that can actually like kind of bridge, the, like that can help black people not be hurting mm -hmm. uh, by holstering their gun, right? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> I mean, so it's interesting, uh, uh, Trevor Noah, has a fantastic bit from a couple of years ago um, on uh, uh, that it should not be a, a, a dilemma between being pro-black pro and pro-cop. 
so for those of you who are interested, check that out. Um, so I guess just the last, the last uh, thing I'll say here is um, if you're at a place in 20 years where, where things are such that, that you, you feel that you need to be looting, uh, I hope I will be there with you. Um, not because, not because I hope we're in a situation where that's necessary, but because I hope I've committed to, uh, uh, committed to being an anti-racist ally, a race trader in the way that I hope all of the white folks who are listening right now uh, will do so as well. Um, yeah, but that, that's all I've got to say. So I just want to say uh, thank you, Dwight, for your insight. Thank you, Dwight, for your experience. Thank you, Dwight, for your friendship. Uh, well, same here, same here, same here. I and really I, do. Hope, uh, I hope folks listening uh, get something out of it too. Uh, yeah, and I hope yeah. you'll join us in the future. Yeah, 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 100%. Um, and it's nice. I be, Yeah, yeah, this is nice. I enjoy it. I enjoy these conversations. Even before we turned on the camera, I was enjoying these conversations. Um, and that's the only reason why we actually decided to turn on the camera. Um, is because we actually were enjoying the way, um, at least the pushback that we were giving each other at times, um, and the ways that we saw the world differently. Um, and so it's really nice um, to be able to have these type of conversations um, with you, Matt. Really is, really is. All right. All right. Peace, folks. <laughs>